Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you. Um, we are in Nehemiah today. We are actually starting our Nehemiah series. It's going to be nine weeks in this book. It'll take us all the way up to April, and then we'll uh, get into Easter. I'm excited about that, too. And we have a lot of fun there. Um, just, just so you know, we, there's just some requests out there, prayer requests, and uh, a lot of people are sick. You know, a lot of people have some cold right now going around. Um, I just want to take a minute. I know we're starting a new book, and I'll probably go long, but it, we need to take a minute for each other and, uh, and pray for each other if we would. Uh, I heard today also um, from someone that Pastor Stan's wife, Lynn, uh, her, her dad, Butch, passed away. So we're going to be praying for, for Stan and Lynn. And, uh, and uh, just recently, I think a couple weeks before that, uh, his, his wife, Lynn's stepmom, had passed away. So he is home with the Lord. We're rejoicing in that. Um, we'll still continue to pray for, for Keith Bradley as he um, receives treatment for his cancer and and just that God is there as well. So I want to, want to pray for that, but I want to open it up. We don't want to share names. It's not a gossip time, but if you have something, uh, a need or something you want to pray about, uh, we could just lift up those requests to God. I, I'd love to hear those. Anyone have something? Yeah. Okay, your, your son. Yeah. He's prayer. Okay, Susan's, Susan's dad, Bob. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, your brother, Ed. Okay. Yeah, Louis. Okay. We'll pray for her. Pam. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Susan. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, John. Same one. Okay. Yep. Ann. Pray for your children. Yep. Come back to the Lord. You bet. Probably a lot of those requests out there. Anything else? Charity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pray for no more snow. We did that last week. <laughs> yeah. Anything else before I pray for us? Karen. Yes. Yeah, Julie has a cold. She does. Okay. Well, would you, uh, would you join me as we pray? Father, we, we pause right now because we care about one another. We're thankful for the family that you've given us and surrounded us with. We're thankful that we know you and we trust in Jesus. And we know that you are the great comforter. You're the great physician. Uh, you're the great counselor. You're the great I am. And we trust you and we we put our confidence in you. And God, these, these requests that have been mentioned today, there, there are so many things going on in our lives and in the lives of people around us. God, we pray for those who need healing, that you would, you would be, be touching them with your healing hand, making them aware of your presence, God, drawing them into the presence uh, and community of Jesus. 
that they would know you more. God, we pray for those who are far away from you and, and dealing with addiction or, or just life choices that have brought them to a place uh, of consequences and, and turmoil. God, we pray that you would you'd reveal yourself to them, that you would, you would put, a, put a hedge of protection around them as they, as they are drawn uh, more to you. And we pray that they would, they would see you for who you are, the Savior that they need. God, we lift all of these prayer requests up to you. We know that you are, you are everything to us, and, and it's in the best hands that we can put it is in yours. So we approach you with it. We ask that you would guide our lives, that we would interact well with those who are in need, that, God, if there's, there's something that you're calling us to do to, to help or to assist those who have a, have a need, you'd open our eyes to that, that we would see with compassion how to respond humbly and gently with love. We thank you again for the opportunity to be here today, to look to your word, to study it, to, to glean knowledge from it and wisdom from it. God, I pray you'd open our hearts now to be receptive to it. Challenge us, renew us, change us, bring us to our knees that we might bow before the King of Kings and serve you alone. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys. Hey, we're in Nehemiah. I think I've said that. Chapter 1. You turn there with me, Nehemiah chapter 1. By the way, to get a really good background on Nehemiah, I mean, you you should be reading the book of Nehemiah, by the way. And I'm really encouraged because I've heard that a lot of you have been actually reading the book of Nehemiah, preparing for our study of the book of Nehemiah. So good job. Way to go. Uh, Also, I would encourage you to read the book of Ezra, Esther, Daniel, some of those things that were going on during the same time to get a little background. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful history lesson. Um, I love history. You're like, Brandon, you're boring me. I hate history. I get that. But I love history, and it's so neat when it makes sense of what's going on in a timeline. So I am going to, to encourage you a little bit with a little background this morning on Nehemiah so you understand kind of where we're at and what's going on and what's happened. So we set the stage for the book of Nehemiah, okay? Nehemiah uh, chapter 1 is where we're going to be starting. Uh, this series, I, I've, I've called it the determined servant or a determined servant. This is who Nehemiah is. He, he's a determined servant. Uh, other, other places you'll see like uh, rebuilding, rebuilding the wall, building a wall. It just sounded too close to home during this election season. So I think a determined servant is where we wanted to go. And I really see that in Nehemiah, that he is, he is a servant and it's, it's seen throughout this book as he prays, throughout this book, uh, as, he, as, he, uh, as he, um, the record of his deeds and actions are kept. He is a servant, but he's not just a servant who's willing and sitting there waiting. He's a servant who is determined to be faithful to the call of God on his life. And I think that you and I can really learn from Nehemiah and, and learn how to be a determined servant in our own communities, in our own families, in our own, in our own church. And really, I want us to focus there this next nine weeks. I want you to, you to focus in and say, God, how can I be the best determined servant in my family, in my church, and in my community slash world, right, to the uttermost parts of the earth? What are you calling me to do? Not just to believe or to know, but what are you calling me to do, and how can I then be faithful in that? The call is to, and the challenge is to embrace God and embrace God's word, to humbly accept correction and discipline, that we would, we would repent of sin and we would embrace Jesus more tightly, and that our, our faithfulness would be to God's word and all the while humble servants 
wherever we go. And I think we can see that in Nehemiah's life. So let's get a little history here. Following King Solomon's death in 931 B.C. Now remember, B.C. went backwards to zero where Christ showed up, and then A.D. goes up until now. So we're at 931 B.C. Uh, is when, uh, after Solomon's death, Israel had split into two kingdoms. So you had the kingdom of Israel. It was, it was flourishing, but, but there was some division. There was some strife. And the northern, uh, northern uh, section was comprised of, the, of 10 of the tribes of Israel, and they called that, and they took the name Israel. And then the southern portion was composed of the other two tribes, the largest being Judah. So the southern region was known as Judah. And then there was more strife, and it was a long history of, of disobedience. And you can see that in the scriptures. You can see the disobedience of Israel. And, and as we read that, remember, it's not something we read and say, oh, they're, they're so horrible. They're so horrible. We read that and say, my heart can be the same way. I have the same rebellion in my heart that the Israelites had then. So there's this long history of disobedience and idolatry, and it resulted in the northern kingdom eventually being conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. So some 200 years after they split, they disobedient, they went their own way, and, and God's like, ah, no, I'm going to let someone conquer you. And then about 110 years later in 605 B.C., the southern kingdom suffered a similar fate at the hand of the Babylonian Empire. Babylonians went in, they sieged Jerusalem, they sacked it, they, they burned things down, they tore things down, they said, this is done, and we're taking you with us. And, and they went into exile and became slaves, or just they, were, they didn't have a home anymore. They were trying to find a place to lay their head and, and be in part of a different community. They didn't have their own community anymore. They had to find their own, their, their, a different community and find their way in a different community. They're very displaced. They were refugees, they were exiles that went out. And then there was a 70-year captivity that followed. This, this, there was this exile for 70 years. that They were either in captivity or exile out, out of Jerusalem uh, for God's people. And then, of course, as empires do, the, the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, they rose. And, and by the way, the, the Medo-Persians, I had mentioned them several sermons ago in December. Uh, this was a group of people from which uh, the wise men came out of. Okay, so that's kind of a connection there. Uh, that's the only connection uh, for now. <laughs> The, uh, the, the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire happened, and they subsequently defeated the Babylonians, and they're like, they're stuck with these Israelites. So like, you guys can go home now. And a lot of them were dead. A lot of them didn't reproduce because they didn't find someone to marry that didn't have their community there. So they were, they were like, it was literally a remnant left. So you guys, we're done. You can go. And they went back to Jerusalem. And what was Jerusalem? It was a broken down, tore down city. No walls, no gates. Right? The plumbing was probably really bad. They couldn't, they couldn't find their way there very well. And, and they were a remnant that went back to Jerusalem. And they went there over about a 100-year period of time. See, when King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire said, we're done, you can go back home, it took about 100 years for the word to spread. And finally, everyone made their way back there. That was a remnant left. But they were almost like exiles within their own home because of the condition that it was in. There was no central place of worship. There was no central place to do business or justice. There was no place to have commerce going on. The, the walls were torn down, always susceptible to enemies, always susceptible to raids. Nothing was their own still. They, still, they, they probably were better off where they were. That's how a lot of them felt. But during this 100-year period of time, there were three leaders that, that kind of took the charge and went back into Jerusalem to try to, try to start to rebuild and say, hey, we're the, we're the people of God and the city of God. Let's do something about it. The first one is an easy, easy name to pronounce. Zerubbabel, okay? 
Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. took off and went in there and started the plans and ideas to, to build up the temple in Jerusalem. And then we have Ezra, in the, and you see the book of Ezra there uh, in 458 B.C. He went back, and, and there was, so there was this time there where they want to build the temple and, and make it to what it was, and, and then there was a stop put to that by King Artaxerxes, and we'll see that in a little while. Um, and, and it was kind of like, what, what's the deal? What's the point of being here? We're trying to rebuild, and then the king tells us, no, you can't. He's making us be, live as remnants and exiles in our, own, in our own town, in our own city. What are we going to do? So there's this time that happens, although they were, weren't exiled, they still felt like they were exiled. So it wasn't like a 70-year period of time. It was like a 170-year period of time that this went on. And, and during that time, I, I really do believe that God continues to work his plan out. Amen? Like God isn't just sitting there twiddling his thumbs, kind of figuring out, do I want to get up today and do something? Like God is always up to something. His plan is always going forward. The plan to exalt himself and make much of him in Christ, that we would see him clearly and, and people would know him clearly, is, is always at the forefront of his plan. And Jerusalem was this city, the city of God, a city that was supposed to be situated on a hill that was to be the light into the darkness. It would be, the temple was a place where they worshiped and, and the presence of God was there amongst the people of God. And, and it was their city to be lifted up and exalted because that's where they wanted to place God, is lifted up and exalted. But they were having some problems there. So I, I mentioned King Artaxerxes had, uh, basically, it, it turn to Ezra. Just keep your finger in Nehemiah. Ezra's right before it. Okay, turn to Ezra chapter um, 4. So they, they try to get this, this temple going and, and continued and, and start starting some walls of the city to start fortifying some city. And, and they want to make this city great again, right? They want to they do something with, with, uh, with God's holy city, lifting it up. And so they send, send uh, people out to start construction. And, and some other guys that were outside the city walls had noticed, and they were, they were friends of the king, they noticed that they, these people wanted to build the walls again and build the gates again and, and try, to, try to build things up. And so they went, without asking motives, of course, without asking, what are you doing? And, and I mean, they want to have, have a home, right? They don't have a bunch of shanties. They want to build a home. They want to live somewhere worthwhile living. So they're building an infrastructure. Well, these, these men, they go tell the king and said, hey, listen, they're, they're building walls. They're going to build an army. They're going to take you out. They're not going to pay taxes. They are, they are rising up against you. Right? And well, if any king hears that, he'd be like, oh, no, they aren't. And he, he put a stop to it. So if you look at verse, or chapter 4 and verse 21, this is Artaxerxes. He says, therefore, issue an order for these men to stop so this, this city will not be rebuilt until a further decree has been pronounced by me. He says, stop, you're done. And, and they went in with the sword, threat of death, and said, no, you're done. You are done. You are to be just the remnant. You're the lower class people. Stop trying to overthrow the government. That's, that's what happened. And, and now from that time in Ezra until Nehemiah happens, I, I don't, I'm not totally sure on the time, maybe 13 years, there, there's this time that God uses dedicated, determined servants for such a time as this that he would, he would use their life, their faithfulness to affect change. And during that time, their faithfulness would also be apparent in the world Nehemiah's faithfulness was apparent to the king, and there was a time where the king's heart would start to soften. Now, we aren't going to see what happens when he approaches him today. We'll look at that next week. 
But there, there's a softening that happens, and eventually Nehemiah goes back, and he's the third one that goes back, and he accomplishes the rebuilding because God is acting favorably to a man dedicated and determined to be a servant and to be a faithful servant to his God. So today, as we, as we look at our, our scripture, today as we look at our text, we are looking at what does the determined servant look like? What, what kind of attitude did Nehemiah have, and what attitude can we have as well if we want to be determined servants serving our great God? All right? So you ready? That was the introduction. Okay, number one. <laughs> number one, an attitude of a determined servant. This one looked out in compassion. See, Nehemiah looked out in compassion. He had eyes to see others first. He wanted to see what was not only others, but what is God up to here? What may be an opportunity for me to serve or love somebody towards my great God? What may be an opportunity for me to do something that would lift up my great God? He had eyes and an attitude that looked out in compassion. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now we'll stop there. This book was probably mostly written by Ezra, not Nehemiah. It, it may have been written by Nehemiah, but it used to be combined. Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book. And Ezra was a scribe, and Ezra wrote Ezra. He was the guy in charge of the word. He'd open the book. He'd read the book. So he likely, as a scribe, penned as Nehemiah sat there and said, here's my story. And as the Holy Spirit divinely inspired him, Ezra scribed Nehemiah, most likely. Could it have been Nehemiah? Sure. During the month of Kislev, which is November, December, in the 20th year, that is of the 20th year of the reign of the king, Artaxerxes, when I was uh, in the fortress city of Susa, now this city was, was a fortress city, it was like the wintering, the snowbird city. So the kings and the officials would go there in the wintertime, and, and that was kind of like the luxury kind of resort place they'd go, okay? That's where they were in Susa. Hanani, the verse 2, one of my brothers arrived with men from Judah, the lower kingdom where Jerusalem is, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem, Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and its gates have been burned down. Now, I want to start there because I want us to see how he's looking out in compassion. Uh, Nehemiah was born in Persia. He was, not, he was not one that was captured and taken away and to a distant land. He was, he was one that was born and raised outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, outside of Judah. Right? He was given a, a, a Hebrew name, right? a Jewish name, but he, he, for all intents and purposes, was not from there. He likely never visited the city before, never been there. But, but as tradition goes and as God's word goes forward, because it's the inspired word of God, and he keeps his word, right, infallible throughout the ages, it's timeless, the remnant, of course, clung to that, and they had that, and they opened the word. And, and Nehemiah was very well versed in God's word. And we'll see that as we go on into his prayer here in a few minutes, how well versed he was in knowing the history of Israel the history of, of God's people and how they, how they had gone astray and how God had promised a covenant. And there was a covenant not only to them, but a covenant of David put upon them for the Messiah to come one day. See, although he was a foreigner to Judah, to Jerusalem, that was his home. That's where his heart was. Nehemiah's heart was on and about the things of God. 
And that's so important if we want to start thinking about being a determined servant ourselves. We have to look and have a heart that's set there with Jesus, looking out with his eyes, with compassion. Looking out to see what is God going to be doing? What is he, when is he going to show up? What is he up to right now? So he was born there, and he likely became aware of this great city and the great stories through all the scriptures and through his family, maybe through fellow Israelites that were there. <clears throat> he knew that the city was to be a center for God's people, that the hope was going to be rising out of that city, Jerusalem, and, and that one day the Messiah would be crucified in that city. He knew that it was a great place, a place of light, expelling the darkness that should be lifted up. He knew about God's promise and his provision. But the city was in ruins, and he had no idea what God was up to. The city was in ruins, and he had no idea what God was up to. What's God's plan? He couldn't see God doing an active current work, especially since Ezra had been silenced in trying to rebuild the wall. So, so I want to get, paint this picture for you for a minute. A lot of stories in Scripture are those stories where God is up to something amazing, and people are partnering with God, and yeah, here we go, team. But a lot, of, a lot of Scripture also is ordinary people on an ordinary day just going about their business. And it, it kind of seems like you and I. We're ordinary people, and this is an ordinary day. We're here to worship and celebrate the resurrection of Christ and the unity we share because of the gospel. But for all intents and purposes, this is an ordinary day. And sometimes we get to the place where it's so ordinary that we miss God saying, hey, I'm up to something. I want you to partner with me. Would you just have eyes to see? Would you just stand alongside and, and park yourself where my heart is? So that as my heart beats, and your heart will beat. And as, as he, God celebrates victories, we will celebrate victories. And as God weeps over things, that we would weep and grieve over things. Even on an ordinary day, we can park ourselves there and have eyes ready to see what he has for us. See, Jesus, or, or Nehemiah cared enough to ask this. What breaks the heart of God? What breaks God's heart? And that's where he planted himself. And that's what he embraced. And that's why he could have eyes of compassion because he knew the God of the Bible. He knew how far his people had strayed. He knew what God wanted to do through his people and through Jerusalem and through Israel. And he was grieving over what happened next. He cared enough to ask, what breaks God's heart? And he aligned himself in the same position so that the things that broke God's heart broke his heart. I want you to think of something. Uh, like large doors, large doors in the back of our auditorium here, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. Life-changing things, very small hinges. Ordinary days. It was an ordinary day when God called Moses and said, you're going to take my people out of Israel. It was an ordinary day. It was an ordinary day when, when God anointed David to be king, the next king of Israel. No, it's not that, brother. No, it's not that, brother. Go grab that one that's just on the hillside. It's the ordinary day for him. Bring him over. Yeah, he's going to be king. It was an ordinary day. It was an ordinary day by the Sea of Galilee when Jesus walked along the, the shoreline and, and spotted the brothers who were fishing and said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. 
And they left their ordinary job, their ordinary nets, and they followed Jesus into the extraordinary. And, and here is Nehemiah, an exile, a remnant of Israel, right? And he wasn't even born in Israel, but he's part of this remnant who's serving, actually serving the king in Persia. And then his brother shows up on an ordinary day, and he asks him the question, what happened? What's going on in, in Jerusalem? What's going on in Jerusalem? The, the truth is this, we must have eyes to see how God may use us as his dedicated servant on an ordinary day. Are you ready for that? Sometimes I don't feel like I am. Sometimes I feel like I want to stay in ordinary mode until something spontaneous and amazing happens. And then I'll, yeah, then I'll come alongside that. That sounds great. Because something big is happening, right? We want to be part of something big. But what if on an ordinary day God calls you to do something amazing or extraordinary? Something that may change the world. That's an amazing day then, right? But if we aren't looking for it, we'll miss it. And it may not even change the world, but it may change somebody's world. It may mean something to somebody. We have to have eyes that look out in compassion. Number two, our dedicated, determined servant, he looked up in dependence. So not only was he looking out in compassion through the, through the lenses of God and letting, letting the things that break God's heart break his heart, he looked up in dependence of God. Let's look at verses 4 through 6a. <clears throat> Here's how he responded. When I heard these words, right, what his, his brother told him, it's, it's a mess in Jerusalem. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night. See, Nehemiah had a dependence on God. He, he broke down immediately and he just said, God, I, I can't handle this anymore. I can't do this. I have, to, I have to trust and rely in you. And I think there's a problem because I think sometimes things don't shock us properly. Things don't shock us properly. You know, and things don't make us grieve the way they should. I tell you, last week I was, I was grieving. I was mourning when the New England Patriots won. <laughs> but should I have been? Like, like, in the scheme of eternal things, is that something I should mourn over? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. What is just a game, right? It's a great game. But sometimes I think that, that things don't shock us properly. See, Nehemiah asked himself the question, what breaks God's heart? And he, and he parked himself there, right? And he was keeping his eyes open, looking through compassion. And then he heard the news that something that breaks God's heart, and he responded with what? A broken heart. He, he grieved. He mourned over his family's sin. He mourned over his countrymen's sin. He, he, warned, he, he mourned that they were far from God and that that city wasn't the city situated on a hill. It was a city that seemed helpless. He mourned because it broke God's heart. 
So here, here's a question I really want you to analyze for yourself this week. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? And is it appropriate that it's breaking your heart? You see, you and I as the church, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, ought to have our priorities set in a place that when something happens that grieves the heart of God, we grieve over that. And when something happens that we can celebrate as victorious because that's what God is doing, then we would celebrate and be victorious. I think you and I laugh at things that make Jesus cry sometimes. I think we don't weep over things that that Jesus would weep over and does weep over sometimes. If you and I want to be determined servants, we have to realign our priorities and our dependence and put them on Him and say what matters to Jesus matters to us. So what did Nehemiah do? He was this determined servant. So what did this determined servant do? How did he show his dependence on God? Well, he knew that in great affliction, or if a great work was to come and be accomplished, then you needed great power. You needed great goodness, and you needed the great mercy of God. He was fully in God's arms saying, I've got nothing. All you have at all, I'm going to trust and rest in you. So let's look at what his prayer looked like, what his life looked like. He he was committed to, to prayer, right? He mourned, he wept, he prayed, he fasted. So he was committed because it was the first thing he did. How do you know someone's commitment? What's their top priority? Nehemiah was committed to prayer. He prayed for days on end, right? He was genuine. Uh, it said he sat down and then mourned. This was a Jewish custom. This was something that you did when you were, you were sad. You wanted to show sadness. You wanted to grieve well. You sat down. You put your head in your, your face or your head in your hands, and you just grieved. He was genuine in his grief. It was real. Then he was sacrificial. What did he sacrifice? Food, right? Food. Like by right now, it's eleven. It's twelve twenty. I'm hungry, right? I can, it's, it's rumbling. He said, I, "You know what's what was so? He was so determined. He was so determined that that fasting was was willing. He was willing to fast. It was worth the while, so that he could pray steadfastly for." his countrymen for Jerusalem, and he could weep and mourn the way Jesus would want him to weep and mourn. It helped him to do that. He had a sacrificial prayer life. And some of you, some of of us, right, I have fasted and prayed, and I do fast and pray. I would encourage you to do that. It is very, very difficult. But partnering with Jesus and being on the same page with him makes it all worth it. Being able to set that time aside to pray when you're hungry, your gut is just rolling, and your headache is pounding, and you're lightheaded, it is so great that time to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to set this time aside. It's going to remind me to pray. I encourage you to try it, to do it, because he's worth it to do that. I know that our, our pastor search committee fasts in prayer and, and prays. We ought to be doing that as well for them and with them alongside of what Jesus is trying to do, a great work in our church. That's what our role should be. He was sacrificial. He denied himself food. And, and oftentimes during that time, food was a big deal. It was, the, it was the time you came together and socialized. Now we just text and then we come and have a 15-minute meal and we're done. Then it was like, hey, come, let's come sit for two or three hours. See how you're doing and eat and then eat that and then we'll eat that some more. So when he, when he decided to fast, he was, he was missing out and absent for two or three hours. 
He had plenty of opportunity. It's not like you and I, like, okay, the family's going to Taco Bell real quick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray in my closet for 10 minutes and be done. That's, that's my fasting. He's like, no, I'm committing myself to prayer. Fasting is a big deal. And he sacrificed that. He was persistent. It said he prayed day after day after day. And we see that until chapter 2 when he actually approaches the king, it's, it's several months that he contemplated, prayed, fasted, and planned. And finally, he was confident. You see how he prayed? He said he prayed to Yahweh, God of heaven. Yahweh was not your normal sidewalk God that you could buy at the dollar store. Yahweh was the, the name for Yahweh is the self-existent one. <clears throat> he was, he's the great I am. When, when God told Moses, this is my name, he said, I am the great I am. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. There's no other description besides that. I am Yahweh. I'm indescribable. That's who he's praying to. And he says, to the God of heaven. He understands that that great huge God that he's dependent on is the God over the universe. He's the one that spoke it into existence and, and he can trust in that God. Well, all of his countrymen possibly and certainly the people in Persia are worshiping and trusting in other gods, false gods. Nehemiah says, Yahweh, God of heaven and earth. He com he's confident in his God. Is the God that you know, the God that you worship, great enough that you can depend on his good hand? Can you depend on your God to prompt you when you need prompting? To guide you when you need guiding? And to carry you when you need carrying? Amen. That's Yahweh. That is our God. The same God that Nehemiah served, the same God that we serve. And if we love God and we love the advance of His glory and the advance of the gospel, we will feel a deep sorrow when the advance of the gospel is halted. And we will be disciplined and diligent to depend on God and pray and fast for our brothers and sisters. To pray and fast, fast for, the, for the movement and the forward movement of the gospel. All the while being dependent on Him. So He looked up or looked out in, in compassion. He looked up in dependence. Number three, He looked inward for repentance. He looked here. You know, He could have been this exile, this remnant who was born in Persia, raised in Persia, he had no excuse, right? There's no, there's no reason. I, I'm, a good guy. I'm a good guy. It was my countrymen's fault. Back in the day, they really messed things up for us. He could have said, God, just ignore them and let's, let's move on again with a with fresh group of people. That's not what he said. He looked inward for repentance. Let's look at uh, the last part of 6, 6b, uh, and then 7. So I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept, uh, not kept your commands, statutes, or ordinances that you gave to your servant Moses. He looked, he knew, he knew he was in trouble. He knew he hadn't done right. He knew he had gone astray. And you and I are the same way. We are the same way. As we exalt Christ and we exalt His sovereign, holy nature, we ought to be driven to our knees in sorrow over the sin that shows up in our lives. Amen? There's nothing exciting. There's nothing righteous. There's nothing about my sin that I want to exalt. Every bit of it I want gone so that Jesus can be exalted. And it, 
We have, we have so missed the mark, folks, in our own lives. We've done that. And, and day in and day out, we, we ought to strive to not do that. And when we know we have, we ought to go immediately to him and repent. When ne- Nehemiah heard from his brother, he heard of Jerusalem's distress. He had been haunted by the recollection of the people's failure to honor God. He knew that they were one big mess. And he had no, no reason and made no excuse for himself or for his people. He was honest about the gravity of their sin. So our sin should upset us and drive us to repentance. If I want to be a determined servant, I need to be driven to repentance often. When we want God in our lives, we want to see God lifted up and magnified, we have to be emptying ourselves and building us up with more of Him. So here's a question for you in this section. What sin is keeping you from being a determined servant? What sin is blocking your community with God, maybe your community with others? What sin is keeping you from being a determined servant? Identify it and deal with it. And do it immediately. Number four, our determined servant, he looked back with remembrance. He looked back with remembrance. Uh, Eight through ten. He says, please remember what you have commanded your servant Moses. It's kind of funny, right? Like he's, God, please remember what you told Moses. It's written down. We all know it. You know it. Just, God, pay attention to your words that you gave to us. Please remember. Because what he's saying is, I remember, God. I'm holding this up. This word is, is so infallible and so, so powerful for us that I'm going to say it back to you. He says, please remember what you, what you commanded your servant Moses. He said, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. He's remembering the words of God. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and your strong hand. Nehemiah says, God, you are a great God, a redeeming God, and you have done so much, and I I am remembering that. And yes, I know we've fallen short, and and I'm I'm confessing that sin, but God, we want to move forward in your promise. We want to move forward in the direction you want us to move forward to. So we look back and remembering what you've done in in our life and in the lives of people around. Nehemiah shows us a deep knowledge of God's word, by the way, and a deep knowledge of God's promises. He remembers and understands them. He holds tight to them, and he wants to see them fulfilled. I I want you to hold your your finger in Nehemiah and go back to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible. And Deuteronomy, we're going to go to chapter 4. And I just want to show you a glimpse of, of something that Nehemiah had been taught and had read himself. What he knew about this God. Chapter 4, verse 25. says, verse 25. Chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 25. When you have children and grandchildren and have been in the land a long time, if you act corruptly, make an idol in the form of anything, uh, and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today 
that you will quickly perish from the land you are about to cross uh, over to the Jordan to possess. Amazing, just the thought of that. They're going into the promised land. It's there. Say, but if you so much as you're out of there. There's a warning before they even get in there. There's this warning. You will not live long there, but you will certainly be destroyed. Verse 27. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be reduced to a few survivors among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. But from there you will search for the Lord your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, you will return to the Lord your God in later days and obey him. He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them by oath, because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. That's the God Nehemiah knew. The stakes were clear before they even crossed the Jordan, people. And they walked in there knowing the stakes. And God drove them out and scattered them. So many perished. Now there's this remnant that has searched for God and searched for them with all their heart and all their soul. And Nehemiah is remembering what God has done. And out of his heart and his soul, he's clinging to God and what God is going to show him, show him next. And what God what may be asking him to do next. He was looking to God in anticipation. And for you and I, if we are to remember, we're to remember what God did in, in Genesis and, and all the way through the Scriptures, but we're to remember what God did in sending and providing the Messiah to us. That you and I have the opportunity and the privilege to believe on Jesus Christ, to believe the Gospel and be saved. That Jesus came while we were still sinners to do something that you and I could not do. He died a death on the cross that, oh, that, that was really meant for me and you. But his shed blood and his resurrection made a way that you and I could be made righteous before God. That Jesus showed himself and showed his righteousness and extended it to us that we could put that, have that placed on us as we believe in him. And we wouldn't have to rely on our own righteousness, which scripture says is as filthy rags. We know the Messiah. And we must continually remember as a prompt in our lives what he has done, what he has said, what he has accomplished, and lift him up that the world may, may know him as well. That's remembering. We look back to remember what Jesus did, and looking back anticipates the future, and that leads us to number five. Nehemiah looked forward with confidence. He looked forward with confidence. Nehemiah 1, 11. Let's look at verse 11, the last verse. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight and revere your name. Give your servants, servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. Nehemiah's position was that of cupbearer in, in Persia to the king at Susa. The cupbearer, by tradition, was, was a man who was very highly esteemed and trusted and relied upon. You drank that much, whatever it was, right, and gave it to the king to make sure he wasn't poisoned. You were a confidant. And actually, what I've seen in my reading is that he was, that the cupbearer was traditionally just under the rank of princes in the kingdom. He was a pretty powerful man. 
And, and just like Esther had been placed in, in, the, in a place in time for such a time as this, and how Ruth had been placed with Naomi, with Naomi and gone back to, to Bethlehem and, and how God's sovereign hand was upon them and he, and he did his work to establish his line and continue his line, God providentially is working in Nehemiah also for a time such as this. That his position, his status, makes Artaxerxes ready to hear from a man who loves the heart of God. And next week we're going to see that. But we, we look forward in confidence. As we become filled with, with a bold determination, we must have a confident faith knowing that we are partnering with God in His story for His glory. Amen? Our faith is about that. And, and again, you, you and I have no idea, by the way, which you have, no, you have no idea what hangs in the balance of our decision to embrace the burden that God has placed on your heart. And here's the final question for you today. Will you be faithful to that burden? Will you be faithful to that burden? Will I be faithful to that burden that God has given you? Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was ready to raise his hand and say, whatever you need from me, God. I'm not just going to be a sideline servant. I'm going to be a determined servant, determined to partner with you in faith and trust you, anticipating that your promise, your fulfillment will bring about something way better than I could ever imagine. Ultimately, your glory and your son Jesus will be lifted up through our life. So this week, I want you to think about that. What is the burden on your heart? And will you be faithful to that? Next week, we'll carry on, carry on with chapter 2, the next part of our story, okay? Let's stand for prayer.